The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church Pulpit Series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. This morning, well, if you've got your Bibles, hopefully you do this morning, especially after Hillary's nice encouragement last week. If you've got your Bibles, please go ahead and grab those and turn to First Peter, First Peter chapter 1. We're sitting in chapter 1, verses 13 down to verse 3 of chapter 2 this morning. And if you were here last week, we kicked off our new preaching series, which is anchored in First Peter, and we've entitled the series Unbroken. And Hill last week expounded the opening theme of the letter, which was Hillary, Hillary, what was it? Hope. It was hope, all right? Hope. Ah, yes, hope. Well, this week we're going to look at a second four-letter word that also begins with the letter H, and that is holy. And so last week, hope. This week, holy or holiness. And this particular focus on holiness is really uh, mentioned in verse 13 of chapter 1, where the Apostle Peter uh, uses a pivotal word that basically highlights the difference between biblical Christianity and Christianity's fraudulent imitations. And that word is the first word in verse 13, therefore. It's a pivotal word, therefore. So basically this is what Peter has just said. He's just announced to us, detailed for us what God has graciously done for us in Jesus. So just bear that in mind, graciously done for us. And now, therefore, he says, verse 13 and following, I'm going to expound for you what God has commanded us to do. All right. And so the do is to flow out of the done. This is what I mean about the difference between Christianity and its ugly counterfeits, because the therefore shows and emphasizes that the do of Christian obedience is to come out of the do uh, the done of grace. That the do of Christian obedience, which Peter will unpack for us this morning in our text, is to be empowered and energized by the done of grace. Otherwise, the do of obedience is destined for failure. It's destined for ruin. Agreed? You with me? But the opposite is also true. The flip side is also true. If the emphasis is exclusively only on the done of grace without an equal focus on the do of obedience, then again, we're just left with a fraudulent imitation of Christianity that ends up draining the Christian message and the gospel of its life-giving, life-sustaining power and joy. Amen? And so this morning, um, one writer, uh, one church father, Tertullian, uh, he is reported to have said uh, these words. And these are gripping words and a very striking imagery as well. He said that just as Jesus Christ was crucified between two thieves, the gospel, the Christian message is ever crucified, endlessly crucified between two errors. And the errors he was referring to are the errors of legalism, and license. License and legalism. Legalism, which basically says, uh, if you want God's mercy, if you want his love, if you want his acceptance, if you want his forgiveness, then you've got to perform well for him. 
You've got to do, do, do his will, and only then will you receive these benefits. License, on the other hand, is the flip side. It's, okay, now that God has done everything for you in Christ, all you need to do is receive, receive, receive. You can just sit on your rusty dusty and do absolutely diddly squat. You don't have to do anything because it's all been done for you in Jesus. Now, Tertullian said that the gospel is crucified constantly between those two errors. And they are errors because the Christian message is neither religion or irreligion, legalism or license, morality or relativism. It's a third way entirely. As each New Testament writer reports and emphasizes, the Christian message is having our heart so melted by the grace, the done of grace, that we more willingly do God's will. Agreed? And so I had to strike that important gospel note this morning because as we come to the text this morning, we're going to feel the force of the Apostle Peter's apostolic exhortations, do, do. But we need to remember that the do is built on the done, that the do of obedience derives its life and joy and daily strength from the done of grace. So now we're ready to engage with the text. Let's pray before we jump in. Heavenly Father, your word tells us in Deuteronomy 32 that your word is no empty word, but it's our very life. And so, Lord God, as we sit under your word, I pray that it would be life for us. Lord, I pray that we would hear these exhortations and be stirred and be challenged, but more so, Lord God, be transformed by the renewing of our mind, be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we ask these things in your Son's precious name. Amen. Well, before Peter comes right out and says, be holy, which he will do in verses 14 through 16, he first exhorts us to be a focused people, a future-oriented people. That is, he wants to convince us That right living is in large part a matter of right thinking, especially right thinking about the future. Listen to what he says in verse 13. He says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, here's the first exhortation, set your hope fully. That's the strength of the Greek, firmly or fully on what? On the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As we saw last week, It's because of Jesus' resurrection we have this living hope, right? We have this living hope in Christ. He's alive. He's ascended. He's on the throne. And so our hope is with him. It's in him. He's the living one. And so now we live and we have a future hope and it's guaranteed. And here's Peter saying, okay, now set your hope fully on that. In other words, push all your chips of faith over to the side of this certain future reality. Bank on it, in other words, because it's your inheritance. But, but someone might say, okay, but what am I supposed to bank on? Does, does Peter flesh it out here? Is it just pie in the sky? What, what exactly is he talking about? Well, he tells us, he says, we're supposed to be banking on, quote, the grace, the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming, which is, this is spectacular, the full 
lasting, unhindered, uncontested experience of our salvation that we will enjoy at Jesus' second curse-removing appearing. That's, that's what we've got to look forward to. And what an appearing that's going to be. You can get excited if you like. It's going to be a glorious appearing because then Jesus' righteous rule, his just reign will never again be contested, but only celebrated by his people. And we should sing about that. But here's the caution or the catch. For us to be a focused people, to set our hope fully on future glory, which we have been given, which Christ's resurrection has secured for us, there is an indispensable precondition. And I'll come to the precondition after this illustration because I think this illustration sets it up really well. I was in Coles two months ago, and that's a rarity. I was in Coles, and Natalie was ill. She was sick. And so I said, okay, I'll I'll go and do shopping at Coles, and, and so you, you make sure that you send me a text with the shopping list on it. And so there I was. I took Maddie and Annabelle. So picture me in Coles with my shopping trolley. Maddie was in the seat, and Annabelle was standing in the trolley because she doesn't like to walk anywhere. And, and I had the text. Natalie sent me the text. And I was studying the text like the text, all right, like the Word of God, because I wanted to be a good husband and get it all right and not miss anything. And so I had my head down, pushing the trolley along, getting the items, and we were having a merry old time, when all of a sudden, crash, <laughs> I had walked into one of the concrete pillars in Coles. And at that, I mean, the, the, the trolley went kind of up. We you know, smacked it really hard as my head, my head down. Poof, and, and Madison, she, she kind of, well, she didn't say what the heck because she's only two. She can't say that yet. But she probably thought that, what the heck? And, and Annabelle, she was slammed forward, smashed her knees on the trolley. And at that, burst into tears. And the lady in the deli, well, she saw what had happened. But when I looked at her, she turned away because she didn't want me to feel embarrassed. And so I was left with the carnage. And it happened because I had my head down. I wasn't looking ahead. I wasn't being future oriented. I was just had my head down. I was distracted. Now, this is the indispensable precondition for being a future oriented people. Listen to what he says. Ready? Notice carefully in verse 13. Therefore, listen, with minds that are what? Alert. Okay. So the opposite of me in Coles, alert and fully sober. That is discerning having our spiritual eyes open, not being distracted and not being intoxicated with minds that are alert and fully sober, then set your hope fully. You see the precondition? For us to first be a future-focused people, we first need to have our minds, here's the thing, our minds freed from the intoxicating values and pursuits of our culture that are often at odds with Christ's kingdom. That's the challenge. Often we are so focused on the here and now that we're not looking ahead and we will crash. We will be disillusioned. We will get discouraged. Mark my words, that is Satan's plan. He has this insatiable desire to blow out the candle of your joy. And the way he does that is through discouragement, getting you down. And one of the reasons why we get so discouraged and beat up is because we're not looking ahead. We crash, crash, crash in life, often because of that. Alvin and I, and if you're not too sure who Alvin is, he is the church magician. Um, 
be careful, he might make me disappear if I say anything negative. <clears throat> but we've been reading a book together. Um, surprise, surprise, it's the new Tim Keller book, um, <laughs> Making Sense of God, with the subtitle, An Invitation to the Skeptical, and it's a fantastic book. And we've been meeting fortnightly to read it and talk about it and pray it through. And our faith has been strengthened by it because it's so perceptive and encouraging. But also at times, both Alvin and I have been challenged by some of Keller's perceptive penetrating insights. Like, for example, this one. This is right on point about the point about hope. Listen to his words. Quote, individuals can profess to not be secular people but to have religious faith. Yet at the practical level, the existence of God may have no noticeable impact on their life decisions and conduct. Why? This is because in a secular age, just stop there, a secular age is one in which all the focus is on the here and now. This is because in a secular age, even religious people like us living in Australia here tend to choose lovers and spouses, careers and friendships and financial options with no higher goal than their own present time happiness. Sacrificing personal peace and affluence for transcendent causes, that is for Jesus, becomes rare even for people who say they believe in absolute values and eternity. We say that, right? Listen to what he says. This is the challenge. Even if you are not a secular person, and we're not, we're Christians, the secular age can thin out or secularize faith until it is seen as simply one more choice in life, along with job, recreation, hobbies, politics, rather than as the uh, comprehensive framework that determines all of life, life choices, unquote. In other words, we are to have as Christians a kingdom framework, a kingdom mindset, a kingdom worldview, so that the deadening effects of our post-Christian secular age don't dull our minds, making us slaves to the here and now. Because Peter says we need to be alert. If we are deadened, then we won't be future-oriented people. We won't be focused on the future. We'll just be so fixated on the here and now. And this secular age will thin out your Christian faith and make it very ineffective in this world. That's the challenge. That's the exhortation. That's Peter's first command to be a focused people. But he goes on to help us consider a second exhortation. He not only wants us to be a thinking people, uh, thinking about the world differently, but also he wants us to behave differently, act differently in the world, largely because we're being shaped by the world to come. Listen to what he says in verses 14 through 16. He says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance before you came to Christ. But just as he who called you is holy, so here's the second exhortation. Be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. And so Peter here tells us at least three decisive things about our holiness, about our obedience. Number one, our holiness is to be comprehensive. Notice verse 15, be holy in what? All you do, some translations, in all your conduct, which means we're not to treat holiness like a lunchtime buffet. You know what you do? You know what we do when we go to a lunchtime buffet? We select the things that we really like, and we avoid, like the plague, the foods that we dislike. We're not to treat holiness that, no, holiness that way. 
It's all or nothing. Holiness is to define our relationships, our friendships, our politics, our work, our spending, our habits, our ambitions, the way we study, the way we do parenting, the way we relate to our parents. Every aspect of our lives is to be governed by God's holiness, this holiness that we've been commanded to pursue. In their book, Everyday Church, Authors and pastors Tim Chester and Steve Timmis write these words about holiness. They say, quote, and this is, this is a, a, a fascinating. They say, holiness is as much about what you do on a Monday morning on the factory floor as it is about what you do on a Sunday morning in a church gathering. Holiness is as much about the kind of neighbor you are as it is about the kind of church member you are. I love this third one. It is much about who you are when you are holding a steering wheel as you are when you are holding a Bible. Like Leviticus, Peter is going to spell out what it means for the church to be distinctive in every area of life. But the headline is this, be holy because I am holy or be distinctive because I am distinctive. So our Holiness needs to be complete, it needs to be total, it needs to be holistic, wholehearted, it must be comprehensive, right? So no more lunchtime buffet experiences with holiness, okay? So next one, covenantal. Comprehensive, covenantal. That is, our holiness shows that we are part of God's community, his community of faith. When Peter quotes Leviticus, in verse 16, chapter 1, be holy because I am holy. He is being very deliberate. He's being very attentional. It wasn't just kind of, all right, well, I, I get a better boost up this exhortation with an Old Testament reference. Okay, well, there's a good one from Leviticus. No, no, no. He wants us to realize that we are, as Christians, the new Israel of God. That we are now the new people of God. And just like the Israelites under the Old Testament, were to reflect and radiate God's nature and goodness to the surrounding nations, so are we. We're to reflect God to those around us, and we're only going to do that when we are holy, when we live differently, when we love differently, when we love truly, because love is the climax of holiness. And so we prove through our holiness that we are God's covenant people. And so obedience really is the family code. It's the family way. We show the world and we show ourselves and each other that we really are God's people through our acts of obedience, which by implication means that if we don't obey, then we are what? We're not in the family because obedience is the family code. If we're not obeying, then we don't know God. It's the reality. So, so our obedience is covenantal. Lastly, our obedience here is Christian. He says in verse 14, as obedient what? Children. And then he goes on to say, be holy. As, as I've already mentioned in this sermon, um, obedience doesn't make you a Christian. All right, we, we, we kind of know that. And, and Paul, uh, Peter has spelt this out for us already in this text, uh, as he expounded last week in the first two verses. He says in verse 2 that we have been chosen because of the foreknowledge of God, chosen by the Father because of his foreknowledge, which is covenant language. It's warm, embracing language that he selected us before the creation of the world, before we had done anything bad or good, right? That, that's what he's saying, which is incredible. And then he says that we have been sanctified by the Spirit, 
meaning we have been taken out of the realm of darkness and deception, where we were sons and daughters of disobedience. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. And made the children of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so these two pillars uh, our faith rests on, the election of God and the sanctifying, powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And then and only then does he say, all that is so that you obey Jesus Christ. And so I've said many times, we obey from this place of security, not for security. We obey from this place of love, not for love. We obey from this place of full acceptance in Christ, not for acceptance with Christ. Amen? Now look, I need to throw this in. Yes, if you don't obey, then you won't experience the love of God. You won't experience his acceptance. That's a different thing. That's what Jude says in Jude 21 when he commands us to keep ourselves in the love of God. It doesn't mean that we fall outside of his covenant love, but it means that we will fall outside of his experiential love. We won't experience his love. And the way we keep ourselves in the love of God is through obedience, through holiness. And so our obedience must be Christian obedience. So it's to be all-inclusive, it's to be covenantal and Christian. And now Peter uh, is, is not really done with urging obedience and holiness because now he wants to stimulate us so that we pursue holiness with all our might. As it was read out, Vera read out uh, uh, Hebrews twelve fourteen this morning, without which holiness no one will see the Lord. And so Peter now wants to give us three massive incentives. He throws three incentives into the mix so that we would track it down that we would pursue and be serious about our pursuit of holiness. Three incentives from verses 17 down to the end of our text this morning. Three incentives are God's impartiality. We're going to move through these in order. God's impartiality, our new identity, and Jesus' costly love. Yeah, God's impartiality, they're on the screen. I don't need to repeat them. The first one, God's impartiality. Verse 17, listen to what Peter says. Since you call on a father who judges. Now, just keep those two concepts of God in mind. He's a father. He's the judge. He's father judge. Judges each person's work impartially, including yours. Here's the implication. Live your time, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. This is what Peter's saying to us. He's saying, don't think for a minute that being a son or a daughter of God means that God will overlook or ignore your acts of disobedience. That's disastrous. That's deadly. Never think, God's just a big, cute, cuddly teddy bear in the sky. I can just get away with this. He'll just wink his eye at my sin and just kind of sweep it under the rug of the universe. That's mistaken. That's deception. Because God, yes, he is our father, but he is king. He's king. He is our heavenly father. And what's conveyed by the term father? Well, he pities us, he protects us, he provides for us. But what's conveyed by the term heavenly? He's king. He's majestic. He's sacred. He's holy. And so he mustn't be trifled with, right? We don't fluff around in God's presence. As one preacher, English preacher once said, we're not to treat God as God almighty, but God almighty. Charles Spurgeon said that when we come to God in prayer, we do come to the feet of our Father, but we also come to the throne of the great monarch of the universe. 
That's our God. And so don't disobey him. That's the implication. That's the incentive. He's God. And if you do, you will feel his discipline. That's what the book of Hebrews chapter 12 is all about. They were struggling with hardships. And the author says, um, it's God's discipline. You're suffering because of something. It's God's discipline for you. And so maybe that's you're going through some kind of hardship. And maybe, just maybe, it's God's discipline on your disobedience. I'm not saying that's the case every single time. That would be wrong. The book of Job. But sometimes it is. And so if there is disobedience, he wants you to repent of it. Because God will judge our acts of disobedience and sin. Because he's our impartial God. That's fair, isn't it? That's fair. And so allow that to be an incentive. That's the first one. The second incentive. Our new identity. Our new identity. You see, the apostle Peter is being very wise. He's being a good pastor, a good shepherd. The first incentive is really addressing our wills. Be holy because God is holy. Now he addresses our minds. He appeals to reason and logic because listen to what he says here in verse 22. He says, now that you have, underscore you have, past tense, purified yourselves. That is, you have been made holy. How? Well, by obeying the truth, he says, that is, by trusting in Jesus You've been made holy by God so that, and this is the outflow of your faith in Jesus, so that you have sincere love for one another. And, and, and love is the climax of holiness. And so this is what we receive when we trust in Christ. He does this work in our hearts. And with that, it comes love for other Christians. I remember before I was a Christian, I used to walk past Christians and churches and think, they're weird. They're weird. Man. Socks and sandals, I mean, nut jobs. Uh, but then when I became a Christian, I found myself mingling with them. I found myself, go, found myself going into the churches that I would walk past and scoff at because of the Spirit of God. And he says that's a, a natural outworking of your faith in Jesus. But now listen, here's the logic. Love one another deeply. Now that you have this love, love one another deeply, which is the climax of holiness from the heart. Can you see what Peter is doing here? He's trying to stimulate and motivate holiness by appealing to logic. He's saying, look, you are alive. You have love for other Christians. Now be in practice who you are in Jesus. In other words, don't work against your own identity, your new identity in Christ. Live it out. He says the same things in verses 23 and following. He says, for you have been born again, again. Completed action, past tense, this is something that has happened to each of us. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word. The gospel again, now drop down to verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, right, therefore, now that you have this new identity, now that you have this new life, rid yourselves of all malice, unholiness in other words, and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. But instead, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may what? Grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Again, Peter is saying, become in practice in your day-to-day lives who you are, what you are in Jesus. You have salvation already, now grow up into it. You have the spirit of life in you, now walk in the spirit. Yeah? 
You have been born again. So act like it. Don't work against your new identity in Jesus. Don't contradict your new nature, in other words. That's foolhardiness. That's stupidity. It's an incentive. I'm to be holy. Guess why? Because I'm holy. Go figure. Third incentive. Jesus' costly love. Peter realizes that appealing to the will and appealing to the mind is not enough. They're to be included, but it's not enough. He realizes that the heart here, our hearts, need to be melted. There needs to be holistic transformation for there to be lasting transformation. And so he appeals to our hearts by offering us this incentive of Jesus' costly love. Listen to his pastoral tone here in verses 18 through 20. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed, that is, bought back from slavery, redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with, listen, the precious blood, the precious, costly blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You see, Peter knew that the most profound emotion the human heart can feel is love. It's love. Not just any old love, wishy-washy, kind of Hollywood, Bollywood type love, but true, wonderful, sacrificial love. The kind of love that says, you first. You first. The kind of love that makes marriages work, and any relationship for that matter work, where each party in the relationship looks at the other honestly and says, no, 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 no. You first. My life for yours. My will for yours. And you see what Peter wants us to see. He's pleading with us pastorally to see this love in Jesus exemplified. On the cross, Jesus, the Lion of Judah, becoming the Lamb, he says. Saying to us essentially on the cross, you first. Not me first. You first. My life for yours. My will for yours. He's seeking to melt our hearts, you see. Seeking to melt. And the amazing thing in verse 20, he says that Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for whose sake? Your sake. This is staggering. This is what he's saying, that the pre-existent creator of the universe became killable. He became, can you wrap your head around that? No, neither can I. The pre-existent one becoming killable to deal with your unholiness to deal with your disobedience, to deal with our sin, being the lamb who willingly gave himself in sacrificial love for us to win our hearts. And so Peter says, whatever you do, don't drag his costly love through the mud of disobedience. Don't trample upon his costly love, but instead pursue holiness. Be holy. For the Holy One who willingly became unholy for you on the cross to deal with your unholiness and to make you his holy bride. Amen. And so allow these incentives to move you. God's impartiality. 
your new identity in Jesus and Jesus' costly love to melt your heart for him. And if your heart has yet to be melted, simply pray to Jesus. Ask him, Jesus, would you melt my heart for you? Because nothing else will bring lasting transformation. Only when he, by his spirit, touches your innermost being and melts it for his fame. Amen. How about we close our eyes and reflect primarily on Jesus' costly love, but on anything else that the Holy Spirit has highlighted to you, in particular in this message.